Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo. Jeremy Goldcorn is away from old Chokey this week, so sitting for him is none other than David Moser, academic director of the CET program, who's going to do his best to impersonate Jeremy's crotchety cynicism, or new. Give us a respite therefrom. <laughs> well, I've been practicing my South African accent all morning, but I don't think I'm going to try it. We were going to try to pull that off. Actually, no, I don't think Jeremy, do you know, they would do Jeremy. Yeah, I don't think I'd do it. Anyway, uh, how are see, you, man? I, I'm fine. I do see why he curses a lot in the show. This chair is really uncomfortable. My butt is already starting to hurt. I'm if sorry. I were him, I'd, you know, if I were him, I'd be swearing See, actually, we, the secret is that I, I, I deliberately do this to him because it's the shtick, right? Ah, to get Jeremy see, grumpy. you got to keep and, it. Yeah, you know, good, good idea. Anyway, we are pleased to have with us Jen Lin Liu, who is the author of the brand new book, On the Noodle Road, From Beijing to Rome with Love and Pasta. Jen, who lives in Chengdu, or at least will for the next year, worked as a journalist in Beijing for many years and opened one of the first cooking schools in Beijing for expatriates mainly. It's called Black Sesame Kitchen. Welcome to Seneca, Jen. Thank you, Kaiser. It's Hi, David. Hi. Hey, so um, we're going to jump right in. And, you know, David, you're going to be co-hosting here. So you just, you know, walk all over me, man. Just, but um, I'm going to ask the first question here. So your your book, uh, your first book, actually, Jen, was a, a memoir about learning to cook called Serve the People, A Stir-Fried Journey Through China, right? So I've not read that. Uh, can you tell us a bit about it before we get into On the Noodle Road? Sure. It's about my experiences learning how to cook um, in Beijing and Shanghai, starting from a little ratty uh, vocational cooking school in the Hutongs that I attended uh, back in 2005 that really started my culinary adventures. Um, and from there, I uh, travel to Shanghai and intern in a fancy restaurant. I work in a little grungy noodle shop, and um, I come back to Beijing and open my own cooking school. Oh wow! So how long did you do this? I mean, from two thousand five through before you opened Black Sesame. Yeah, I mean, it started just with the cooking classes at the little dumpy cooking school, um, and then I, I, you know just learned more about cooking through all my travels um, in Shanghai and elsewhere in China. And then, uh, so yeah, it, it was like a two-year cooking adventure, and then the book came out in 2008, right before the Beijing Olympics. Were you like a foodie, a big a big food person before that? Or? I wasn't. I actually only became a foodie after I moved to China. Um, right. It'll do that to people. <laughs> yeah. I just, I never really thought so much about food. Um, I covered all kinds of issues as a freelance journalist in China, but food was always the topic that got people uh, talking in China and so something that was a, a conversation starter with virtually anyone. And so I kind of latched on to that as a topic because I realized I could really get to know people through learning about the food. Yeah, because you can't talk about anything else. <laughs> so very often it, at stuffy, uncomfortable conferences, the easiest thing to do is to comment on Well, the, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, that was one of my revelations was, you know, I was at a boring interview with a government official. And, of course, we did it over lunch, which is pretty normal in China. And as soon as the food arrived on the table, he became a different person and just opened up and was explaining why this Peking duck was so good and how, you know, the sauce had to be just right just between so Tianmianjiang and the sugar mm. and the leek and all of that. So that just really got my um, my interest started in food. Yeah, you know, every time I've traveled around the country, um, you know, that's the great, uh, the, the key is to, to praise, uh, invariably, you know, if you're, say, on, on tour with a, a band or whatever, 
because you know, we all play in rock bands, right? Uh, you, you, they'll invariably take you to like the place that that, that showcases their local mm. cuisine, and and you, you need to just sort of praise it, and instantly you ingratiate yourself with them. It's, it's yeah. In fact, uh, I don't know if this is true for you, Jen, or not, but I've lived in China for like twenty five years, and every week I think I eat something I've never eaten before. Oh easily. yeah, I yeah. mean, there's so many regional cuisines in China that it really, you know. There's really no expert in on all the, you know. There's just so much to discover that you're constantly learning, and you could be here for even even for a know. native Chinese who've lived here yeah. their whole life. I mean, a lot of them, and plus they're so stuck in the region in the, the region that right. they're from in terms of the food that they like that pretty much everything else is a foreign cuisine to them. So, serve the people was is that does that also contain recipes? Yes, there's also recipes so, in that, including one for pork belly, which I know you'll love. Ah, okay, excellent. So this new one, it's a it's a travel book, it's a food book, it's got recipes. What was the inspiration? I mean, uh, you, you combined a, a bunch of different themes in this and twisted them together like a, a crawler. Like a noodle. Yeah, yeah. Well, the impetus was a journey, uh, actually a, a, a trip, a previous trip that Craig and I made to to Rome um, a few years back, and it was right after we had gotten married, mm-hmm. and... We, he had treated me to a pasta-making class in Rome where I discovered that the method for making Italian fettuccine was exactly the same as the way that I learned how to make Chinese noodles ah. here in Beijing. Mm. So that just really got my curiosity going. I mean, you know, you always hear about the Marco Polo thing. Did he bring noodles from China to Italy? So, and so did he? I guess that's what everyone really wants to yeah, know. Yeah, just answer that right away. Just spoil it. <laughs> spoil it. I'm just spoil it for Okay, us. well, I spoil it in the first few pages of the book, so it's not a huge deal. But basically, it was a myth invented in 1929 by a uh, trade publication in the United States to spur the consumption of pasta, which actually was relatively unheard of at that point in oh, American yeah. history. Uh, so the um, it was in a in a magazine called the Macaroni Journal, of all things. <laughs> you could publish anything back then. Yeah. And um, basically, it was, you know, the story of, you know, Marco Polo and going to this mythical land, and it sounds a lot more South Pacific than it does mm. Chinese, and he comes across natives drying strands of noodles. And in reality, we know here in Beijing that they don't actually dry the noodles before they cook them right. the way they do in Italy. Mm. So um, it was a myth, and... Um, and it somehow became this worldwide uh, story that everybody tells. So Chinese like, have their own story about yeah. it, too. You've oh, heard what, the Chinese What's the Chinese myth, story? Right? What's the, no. um, that Marco Polo also tried uh, baozi, meat-filled buns, here in China. And he forgot how to fold them. And oh, Italy yeah. ended up with pizza. <laughs> oh, I thought it was – I was thinking the yeah, punchline would be ravioli. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But but the Chinese also claim to have, have invented pizza, too. Right. So the Chinese <laughs> are the inventors of pizza as well. Ah, uh, oh, naturally. Okay, so um, you traveled for six whole months. So can you quickly go through the itinerary? Um, you went from Beijing to Taiwan to Xi'an. Sure. Right. So I traveled from Beijing um, through Sanxi province, uh, Xi'an. Good noodles uh, there. Yes. Um, Lanzhou, which is known for their uh, Lanzhou hand-pulled noodles. The Lanzhou la mian. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And then um, through some Tibetan areas of Qinghai, through Xinjiang, of course, before I crossed the border into uh, the stands, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. Ooh, Turkmenistan, that's fun. <laughs> and then I Is go there an on... Uzbeki Becky Stan Stan Stan? <laughs> or did, did Herman McCain just make that up? Was it Herman Cain? <laughs> Herman, yeah. 
the, the, the Republican presidential uh, candidate. What was his name? You have to Herman Cain. Herman Cain. Yeah, right. Right. What was I don't I don't know that reference. Uh, you, you don't never. Okay. Remember. He, he <laughs> said he said if some reporter asked me about some country like Uzbekis Becky Stan Stan Stan, I'll just say you know I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, so Turkmenistan and then Iran. Uh, then I go through Turkey, um, across the Mediterranean, through Greece to Italy. Ah, okay. And there, there's some areas actually where noodles kind of drop off the map completely. I mean, after Xinjiang, before, and 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 before, I, I mean, actually, there's I don't I don't encounter noodles again after Xinjiang for quite quite. Well, some. there no, are noodles. I mean, there are uh, dumplings. Different. I mean, if you define in Chinese culture and also Italian yeah, culture, yeah. you would define. Yeah, yeah. Uh, noodles would include dumplings. Right. So you have um, dishes like manti, manta, which are a um, a kind of folded dough similar to to uh, uh, you know jiaozi here in China, and with, um, with a name that sounds a lot more like manto. Yes, yes, manto. You, you you do a lot of that actually. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, There's no, a, it's a lot of. Yeah. Um, you 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 notice the similarities between the pronunciations of, of yeah, words. Yeah, there's a and, lot of linguistic similarities, like the word uh, manta, which describes um, dumplings in Central Asia and Turkey, um, is sounds like manto, and there might be a, a culinary connection there somehow. Some there, um, some culinary historians posit that uh, the Mongolians, Genghis Khan, um, in his conquests, brought. Uh, dumplings all the way from Asia to Eastern Europe. And you see a whole, you know, a whole range of dumplings from, you know, the uh, mandu in uh, Japan to um, the pierogies of Eastern Europe. Yeah. Aha. That's that's familiar sounding. You know, if you've ever been to Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic, um, what they call dumplings are exactly like mento. Mm-hmm. They're like slices uh-huh. of mento that they goop gravy over, and then yeah. they're they're horrible. But I mean, they're, they're <laughs> really yeah. So I mean, I think there, th- it's quite likely that there was some connection between you know the conquest of <clears throat> Genghis Khan and what he you know how he brought those things along with him on his journey, um, if not him himself, his armies and all the people that followed. I mean, that's a kind of a general question. I just wanted to throw in because you, you you did this interesting trip, you know, sequentially, sort of all the way from. From China, from Beijing, right, all the way to Italy, it, uh, and, and you know, if you're if you're going from region to region, there's this smooth, sort of smooth progression where it seems like the overlapping cuisines are like overlapping Venn diagrams, where there's a little bit of That's commonality right. here and there. But by the time you get to Italy, as you just said, um, you know, there's no really evidence that Marco Polo brought you know pasta back back to Italy. But so so at what at what point do you say that? I mean, well, part of the, your book gives the impression that everything is really fusion cuisine. It's all influenced from, you know, uh, regional out cultures, you know, from, from surrounding regions. But then there's this other idea that given local conditions and local produce, local materials and human palates, people are going to discover the same thing independently over and over again. So what's the story here? To what extent are we looking at cultural borrowing and at what extent is it independent? Invention. Well, I think food adapts to um, the cultures, the geography of whatever place it ends up in. And, you know, there are obviously dishes that have, it's very clear that some have migrated. Like, for example, lamian mm-hmm. in China, hand-pulled noodles, becomes logman right. in, in uh, Uyghur 
um, communities in, and in Central Asia. And, and it's actually a borrowed, ter- a borrowed term, right? It's a linguistically yeah. similar term, and the method is exactly the same, mm-hmm. except for the fact that um, they're just not as, they're a little bit coarser in Central Asia. They're not as, you know, refined, not as thin as they are in China. So you see those kinds of um, echoes going through. The same with uh, the dumplings we were just talking about, Monty and Manta in Central Asia and Turkey. They're um, in in Central Asia. They're quite big dumplings um, that are steamed um, in you know several tiered layer pot. And then by the time you get to Turkey, they become these very tiny uh, tortellini like dumplings, but with virtually the same filling. Ah, so I mean, this is one of the things that just broke my heart, though. And I think David, you, you had the mm-hmm. same reaction to this. Yeah. Um, I you know growing up here in Beijing or so spending so much time here uh, and fancying myself a, a great Connoisseur yes. of, of of Uyghur food, knowing you know I'm back in the, the day going to Ganjiako or going to um, Weigong Weigong yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but um, I guess that's it's it, you said in your book something like it has the same relation to uh, real Xinjiang food that American. Chinese Sui. food has chop yeah, suey. Has, has, has real Chinese food. I mean, I'm yeah, so I mean, it's really interesting. Is when you get to Xinjiang and you go to you know restaurants in Kashgar, in uh, Turban, and whatnot, um, you find out that there are some myths about Uyghur food that are have spread all across China, um, and one of them is, for example, that Da Panji is Uyghur, and the Uyghurs say, "No, it's not our dish." We First of all, hate chicken, and second of all, we don't need anything <laughs> spicy. So, um, you know, that was they attribute it to the Hues, who then spread it around. And the other thing is that most Uyghur restaurants around China are not run by Uyghurs themselves, but certain, you know, Muslim minorities. You know, there's the Hui, right? You know, probably more than a dozen Muslim minorities in China, including the Hui, mm-hmm. the Dongxiang, um, very small groups. And these groups go out and disseminate the cuisine of, of Uyghur food. They can't sell, you know, their cuisine because nobody knows what it is. Uh, right. So, wow. So, so, so what is, is it? <laughs> yeah. What is Uyghur food? Yeah, what's yeah. real Uyghur food like? Well, um, they really like those steamed dumplings. Uh, they call them manta, which are filled with um, uh, either pumpkin or mutton and then served with cream. That's a very Uyghur dish. Wow. Um, Sounds kind of Russian. I don't think I've even had that. <laughs> yeah, no, I've that's never, no, never I've even never on the menu. It. Yeah, that's not really on the no. menu, is it? Uh, they love Nong, of course. That is very Uyghur. That's real. Right. Yeah, they, I mean, everywhere they go, they, they Uyghurs travel with Nong, you know, and there's this respect for the bread. That yeah, the veneration see. for it. That was, yeah. that was something that struck me in yeah. all the Muslim countries that you yes, visited. Yes, yes. Um, and actually, that goes all the way to Italy. Um, Italians eat actually more bread than they do noodles. But pasta. Jen, give, give so, the example you gave when a uh-huh. piece of bread falls on the ground or something. Oh, right. <laughs> they have to um, pick it up and elevate it above their heads, kiss it a few times, and actually place it above them. And it's this idea that I think was, was really nice, is that you know you don't take your food for granted. Mm-hmm. And in fact, after the trip, I actually have started packing my you know the bread you get and you know western restaurants um i pack it away with you know my other leftovers because why waste it reverence and respect yeah yeah Yeah. i I was also struck by the the um 
like you were by I, I I've been to Uzbekistan and I, I, you see, you spent a good lot uh, amount of time there and had a lot of adventures in, in Uzbekistan. But uh, I was also like you struck when I went to Tashkent by and this was many years ago by the the amazing produce that you saw in these bazaars like uh, the piles of nuts and the these delicious melons and all these um, you know mountains of onions of these yellow onions. Mm-hmm. But but then you're. Your actual experience of food in Uzbekistan. Yeah, somehow was... those bazaars don't translate into a vibrant cuisine. It's It was one of the biggest letdowns because, um, you know, on our first days in Uzbekistan, um, Craig and I stumbled into this amazing bazaar with, you know, beautifully arranged pears and cashews and pistachios. And, um, you know, then we went to the restaurants and um, you pretty much get the same five dishes over and over again. And the main one is called plav, um, which is a dish that extends, you know, from Xinjiang, where it's called polo, through the Indian subcontinent. It's known as pilau Pilau, there. And then pilaf, of course. And then pilaf in Turkey. So, um, you know, it's interesting because that's when rice really um, sort of supplants uh, noodles and pasta as the main staple once you get into Central Asia. And um, that kind of rice band goes all the way through Iran. But anyways, this this plav dish that we had, um, it's a dish that is um, served to guests of honor. And so it, because everywhere we went, we were guests of honor, we got this dish <laughs> basically every time we went out to eat with anybody or anytime we went to somebody's home. Um, when we went to wedding celebrations, um, I actually it was cracked everywhere. up when you when you said you know, and they brought out the you know what <laughs> you referred to it at one point. As the you know what, what even sounds boring? Plov. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sounds like it just bleh, it melts in your mouth or something. So, how, is it different? Um, I mean, when you get into Uzbekistan, I remember it very really well. Um, it, it's quite similar to the shojua fan in 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 very similar. Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. So it's carrot. I mean, it's it's rice. Uh, with mutton. Uh, mutton, a little bit of mutton fat for flavoring. Onions, and then carrots. Onions and carrots. Uh, raisins, uh, once raisins, in a while. Raisins, right? um, the seasonings are cumin and black pepper. And you do, you do actually have a, a good recipe in there for sort of a, a better one with like yeah, a so pomegranate was, garnish. Yeah, and, by the end of Uzbekistan, I was complaining to one, to one of the owners of the guest houses I was staying in, um, run by two sisters. And they said, well, let, we, we can do plov differently for you. So they made this actually quite amazing um, recipe with um, uh, pomegranate seeds and quinces and um, heads of garlic that kind of melted like butter into the plov. So it can be done differently. Um, and I think it was just some more the monotony. I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about, you know, for us being brought up in America or having lived in overseas and being in an in international community, we are exposed to so much food that um, it's quite different for people who don't travel, who are, you know, stuck in one place. They know a few things and that's what food is to them. And, you know, it wasn't that different in America a couple generations yeah, ago. Yeah, pretty dull. But the, can I bring up the, cult, the the subject of cultural relativism now? Is that okay? Sure. That? But because, it comes up I mean, you, you do in your book, uh, you you denigrate, uh, or you just with an offhand comment, you denigrate uh, British food. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think to some extent maybe American food. I mean, you, you admit that you're the, ch- the food you grew up eating was bland and, you know, it only proved later on, you know, when when oriental or, or exotic cuisines came to the, to, the, to America. But, my, but the thing I want to answer now is, I mean, I have a very clear idea. I think 
Chinese cuisine is the best cuisine in the world. And we have a food expert here. I mean, I mean, you're, you know, as a cultural, I was raised in, you know, I went to college like uh, Kaiser did and everything you did. You were supposed to say, no, no, all cultures are equal. You can't judge. You can't say <laughs> one is better than another. They just have a different set of components working together in complex ways and blah, blah, blah. I say bullshit. Yeah, there'll be a Jeremy there. Screw that, right? yeah, I mean, I think Chinese food is the best cuisine in the world. So I, I don't want you to disappoint me, but I, I do want an honest answer from you. <laughs> is Chinese, and you admitted, by the way, a second ago that, that you weren't a foodie until you did come to China, <laughs> right? I mean, so that's evidence for my case, but go ahead. Well, I'll tell one story before I answer that question, and it, uh, it was in the Tibetan areas of Qinghai that I got to know this Tibetan guy who ran a restaurant there serving Tibetan food, and I can't say that I loved the food there, but... Oh, come on. Come on. Come on. Be honest here. <laughs> you, you, you love that Tsampa stuff, didn't you? <laughs> but one of the questions I posed to him was, well, what do you think of Chinese food? And he said, it just makes me want to retch. I cannot eat. You know, I cannot eat the, the way that they – I cannot stand the way they stir-fry meat. It just melts in your mouth, and it's so goopy, and the texture oh, is completely oh no. wrong. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he just said, you know, when I went to Hong Kong, all I ate for a week was instant noodles <laughs> because that's all he could eat. You know, there. there's some kind of political element in his loathing for the Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so I think it's just really what you're used to. I mean, I'm still – you know, having grown up in Southern California, I mean, I still have, I'm still really partial to, you know, kind of semi-fake Mexican food. <laughs> oh, I am too. I love that stuff. <laughs> and, you know, fish tacos and, you know, that's comfort food to me, you know. And I think it just really is a question of where you're raised and what you like. I mean, it's... I, but I wasn't <laughs> raised in China. And when I got here, yeah. I instantly realized yeah. this was the most amazing cuisine. It is. It. I mean, the diversity in China is probably unparalleled. Um, just, you know, the geographic diversity, the, you know... Even though you don't see it everywhere, the ethnic diversity. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, also, they also they throw themselves into it with creativity and panache. I mean, it's like their version of sex. I mean, they're obsessed <laughs> with it. It just is on their minds constantly. Well, you know? I don't know. I mean, you think? Do you think that Chinese food is creative? It seems to be. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when you, when I go back to the U.S., I mean, Chinese can do about fifteen different things with a fish. Yeah. That is just amazing. And I go back to the U.S. and I think, you know, I'll try fish, and it's always like. Two styles, right? You it's know. trout, all trout, dean, yeah, or or, or it's battered, like fish and chip type, food. yeah, like like uh, see, you know, red lobster. That's one of the problems that's with it. food here in China is that it. Well, I guess in the you know the first tier cities like Beijing and Shanghai, you are getting creativity in in Chinese chefs, but that isn't something that they're really known for doing. They're known for, you know, learning. Working within a tradition. Right? Yeah, yeah. Lear working with it, right. Exactly. But the tradition itself is incredibly, incredibly rich, right? vast. Yes, it is yeah. vast. That's true. It's just, that I mean, you true. don't go to any restaurants in the world where the menu is as thick as you, I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I've, I've, I, a couple of places I eat, there are three menus. I mean, because, yeah. you know, one menu does not contain yeah. all. A little back alley hutong will have like 50 dishes you can order. Yeah, you yeah I to, love how long it usually takes people to order. You know, you yeah. go out to you know dinner with your Chinese friends and it takes them like half an minutes, hour yeah, yeah, exactly. and, and the, the, the waitress will dutifully stand there and, and <laughs> yeah. listen as you flip through the pages and, yeah, and then and then if the, the dishes aren't on the table in five minutes they'll start you know yeah. yelling <laughs> which is just absurd the, the standard for, for, for how, how fast 
dishes are expected to arrive. This was astonishing. Here. Can, can I ask one other quick question of about course. technique? I mean, when I watch the Food Channel, you know, in the U.S. or something, I watch Julia Child back in the old days or something. I mean, the idea is I could watch this show, and by just listening to it and watching it, I could I could reproduce that at home. I mean, I could just take the same ingredients and I could do it. That was the feeling. But when I see Chinese chefs work, I see, you know, Chinese cooking shows. There's a technique there that I couldn't do that. I mean, part of it is the way they call the dao gong, you know, the, the mouth nice technique. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I couldn't do that in a million years. That, that would be like, you know, you'd have to practice that. And there's all sorts of techniques and, well, and, and, and managing is, the fire, the flame, the heat of the wok and everything. Yeah. It's like you can't do that overnight. Well, and also, also with fun. noodles. I mean, the innovation with, you know, um, for everything from, you know, dao xiaomian, you know, knife grated noodles yeah. and senshi to the lamian, you know, which are, you've seen videos. And, and you can do that now, right? I mean, you know how to do that. You can oh, do the whole chop I wouldn't be able to do, you know, super well. I mean, that is a skill that if you're a lamian chef, you, you do that pretty much every day for your existence. And if you stop doing it for a few months, you get rusty. It's, I mean, it's amazing. Do. I mean, it's something that blows people away. And yeah. yet it's to, to, to foreigners, I mean, but to yeah. Chinese people, People, it's utterly banal now. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, I work in a place with a, a cafeteria that feeds 5,000 people every day uh, for lunch, just lunch alone. And we have two pulled noodle stations where there are these, I mean, each of them manned with four guys who are just nonstop doing this. I mean, doing it full flourish with the whole, you know, letting it twist and then pulling it yeah. and then doing the jump rope thing. <laughs> and then you see the, the power of, you know, exponential uh, growth, right? The mathematical, the mathematical, right? Power of two, <laughs> yeah. Which is just astonishing. It's, and and the, the, the way they do it is almost like a branch of ac- Chinese acrobatics. It yeah, it's, 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 it's it kind of beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. It's so see, that's an So, is that true of these other cuisines? As was it like some t- took more sheer, you know, expertise or sort of, uh, you know, training to do. I mean, it's surely not every cuisine is like... Well, every, I mean, not to sound like, you know, what we did in college, but, you know, like in Iran, for example, I was really amazed by how they treated rice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of an afterthought in Chinese food. They just, you know, we just steam it here. We boil it, you know, we steam it basically or make fried rice out of the leftovers or rice porridge. I could eat Iranian Persian, Persian rice for... Like that's that's all I would need to eat for a meal. Yes, I mean, it's just yes. so amazing. I mean, they them there's like a dozen steps in the process of making Iranian rice, and you, it just made me think of it in a whole new light. Especially the stuff well, at the bottom. What's oh that? right, the, oh, my the God. tadig. Yeah, the, the tadig. Um, rice oh, my crust God. is amazing. And when it's like yogurty and oh, yeah, God, yeah. Just... Sometimes there's potatoes on the bottom, um, and. So I should give a shout out for Rumi, right? Of course. Oh yeah, absolutely. Favorite, right. You you Persian read about Rumi in your in your in your book. Yes, yes. I got to know the owner a bit, and he's got an interesting story about coming to China and and opening one of the first uh, Persian restaurants here. And he's got quite a crowd of. What's interesting is I think you see kind of all intersections of the community here, right? In at his restaurant, Chinese, Middle Easterners, Westerners, everyone goes there. Right. It's it's a great restaurant. Uh, it's right in San Lituan, and so it's uh, it's very convenient. But my God, I I love that place. I I eat there as as much as my wife will allow, and she you know she likes it too, which is good because you know I think a lot of Chinese people quite like that that place. It's it's pricey, but it's you know, they let you bring your own wine. Byob, yeah, yeah. it's right. byob. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. No corkage fee. You just get to yep. have, you know open up a bottle. 
Um, there was another food stuff that that made the, that crossed um, a great swath of the Eurasian landmass, which I thought was really interesting. So when you were in Xi'an in the Muslim quarter, you ate one of my favorite dishes, yang rou pao mo. And so um, lamb and bread soup. Right, lamb and bread soup. More the, the, the sort of you, you, you've got to you know break it apart yourself, and it takes like you know fucking half an hour just right. to break up the wall to the satisfaction of whatever she I mean they have this perverse thing like, yes. you know they're, they stand in judgment you of you you haven't, you haven't crumbled it small enough it's like just okay well, you know, I'm just going to pulverize it you know? <laughs> but um, it's it's an amazing dish um, it's one of my favorites and every yeah. time I go to Siena it's the first thing I do is go go, go eat that but I, I see it showing up again in points further west. Yeah, I mean, that dish is so interesting because that motion of breaking up the little, crumbling up that bread is a motion that some food historians have theorized as being the first um, method of making noodles, basically, ah. that they were broken from little, uh, you know, that noodles came from bread, which makes intuitive sense because it's the same stuff, right. uh, flour and water. Um, or flour and some other substance like eggs. And then basically in China, they started tearing it and ripping it into wax. And the motion that they do is um, still something that they engage in. And it's a dish called, and you make a dish called mian pian out of it's it. Like those cat noodle, ears, squares. Right. noodle squares, right, basically, yeah. that are very common through Qinghai um, in the Gansu region. I love that stuff. My God. So stir fried. Usually served cream. with a yeah, stir fried with a kind of a spicy tomato sauce, right. pieces of beef or lamb. Absolutely delicious. The green pepper is crucial. Yeah. I, I have another question about um, you know the bread and noodles and you know manto and these kind of things as a Chinese concept of zhu shi, yeah. which we translate as staple. And when I first came, I can remember a long time ago, and my students experience this every time they come. My, my American students, which is they're at a restaurant or something, and people say, "All right, now what about the zhu shi?" And, and the Americans don't even know what they're talking about. What? what, what, what? You know, you're Jewish. You want being? Do you want, do you want, do you want, you want rice, rice? Or do you want, the, you know, and then what? Because so it seems to me like there's cuisines in which the Jewish is incorporated so much in the food that you don't even think of it as a separate item. Like right. we, we, eat ha- we eat hamburgers and sandwiches and you don't think, oh, this part is the Jewish. Right. This I, part, always, you know, I always love it on plane rides when they ask you, do you want rice or noodles? Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> Rather than chicken or beef. So so is that <laughs> true of other culture, <laughs> other food cultures that they don't even have that concept? Or is this, well, I mean, is this do, a, how much is this a Chinese the, thing? They do have that concept in, for example, Italy, pasta. Pasta yeah. actually is a much wider ranging uh, category than just noodles. It's Risotto, It refers to... Also, right. Paste, basically, paste of, it can be, um, I had dishes called pasta that were uh, kind of like a cake or a bread because it's made out of dough. Ah. So, oh, so, cake, so bread or cake can also be called pasta? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, wow. in certain parts of Italy, not everywhere. Mm. But, um, you know, so the, and the idea in, in northern China, of course, is that mian shi, you know, flour-based products are an, a, an entirely separate category. And manchu includes bread, you know, bing. Um, it includes noodles, mian, mm-hmm. and um, all, you know, these various types of uh, flour-based foods that we eat in northern China. Mm-hmm. The, uh, interestingly, in southern China, for example, I now live in Chengdu, they, you know, it's not a, it's not a culture based around flour, of course. It's rice. 
So, you know, there is this divide between northern and southern China. But I remember recently you posted on Facebook a recipe for dandan mian, which is very Chengdu, right? That is Chengdu, but they never make the noodles by hand. Ah, it's always was... boiled noodles Ooh, that, kind you know, pre-made, yeah. So you, living in Chengdu, I mean, that's something I want to spend a good 10 minutes talking about. Uh, you must be kind of in heaven there. I mean, the food there is just phenomenal. Oh, yeah. David, I mean, if I had to ask you, uh, if you had to limit yourself to one regional Sichuan. Chinese... Okay, right. I didn't have to finish <laughs> I that. I know what you're going to ask. Yeah, absolutely. What's Sichuan. really interesting, though, is the Sichuan food you get in Beijing is totally different than the Sichuan food you get in Chengdu. Yes, because I, I was different. just in Chengdu. Right. You're, I, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it is absolutely. different. It's absolutely. different. Although it's pretty darn damn good here, too. I mean, yeah, it is right. not bad here. here. Yeah. I think it's just a different idea. For example, you go to most Chengdu restaurants now, you cannot find Kung Pao chicken. Well, yeah, but that's not something I would order. You cannot find Yunshang You can't find, you know, uh, you do find, you actually can't even find Hui Guo Rou in a lot of restaurants. Oh, really? These, you know, standard Sichuan dishes. um, They've moved beyond that because, you know, you can't just serve those in most restaurants now because that's what people make at home. So... So um, describe for us a, a Chengdu meal when you, when you go out to eat at a decent well, restaurant. What are some of the dishes that you order? Almost always you'll have um, rabbit on the table. Right. What? They almost love, yeah. always you'll there's, have yeah, rabbit? Yeah, tons of rabbit. They yeah. love rabbit. Love it. Gosh, I was and, there. I didn't eat any rabbit. I didn't really know. Oh, really there's, see that. They, they, they do they basically like lazaji, but with rabbit meat instead. It's well, that's so true. Good. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, actually, probably, I would say... 60 to 70% of the time when you go out to eat in Chengdu, you're eating hot pot. Oh, my God. They love hot pot. And Mm -hmm. it it doesn't matter what kind of hot pot it is. You know, there's all different kinds. Obviously, Chongqing hot pot is the most popular. But, you know, you've got, you know, the Sichuan, Chongqing style. And then you've got, uh, you know, Thai hot pot, um, you know, Hong Kong hot pot. I mean, they just love anything that's boiled in a a vessel. Hmm. Which so, I don't, I don't really understand. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of a purist when it comes. I mean, I, I can't do any oil based. It just, just, just grosses well, me out. Well, you know, I learn, I, I have learned to appreciate hot pot. And the thing about hot pot that you need to, that, you, you know, you have to go into the, um, the experience knowing is that it's all about textures, and it's all about the, you know, everything kind of tastes the same once you put it in the yeah. hot pot yeah. because it's very spicy. Exactly, it's very oily. And you know, you take you take it out of the the you know the huagua and then you dip it in this um you know sesame paste. Well, or, no, actually they don't. They don't use do sesame that. Paste. That's, that's very. They you know, use sesame oil. Sometimes they put oyster sauce in it. Mm-hmm. So kind of like a counterbalance, a bit of like coriander some sugar um in there and then you know so you kind of counterbalance all the spice by putting it into that and then you eat it and it's all about the different textures that you get you know so you get like Hmm. you know cow stomach and you get you know little fish in there and you get um you know different textures of tofu and uh vegetables so (laughs) that's right it's it's, all about koga and yeah it's all about the texture because the taste is i mean everything tastes tastes the same i mean it is kind of this addictive thing right because of the spice and you get into it and it's about eating over like three hours and drinking lots of beer and um developing a headache because of all the msg (laughs) (laughs) well you know uh my daughter was was raised in beijing so she's got this very way they say you know she's very used to the salty yeah and i I always wonder you know once you've had like indian cuisine or you know sichuan cuisine where you you're used to that it's 
does it seem very hard to go back to any other kind of non-spicy cuisine? I mean, because my daughter, when she's in the U.S., last Christmas I, I, I saw her, you know, she, she loves, you know, malatang. That's what she loves. I, mean, I saw her with her Apple computer, and she was, she was downloading photos of malatang. I said, what are you doing? She said, I just miss it so much. I said, what is this, food porn? You're downloading photos of Malatang. She you're, can't you're go lucky, back huh? to, the, to the sort of sweet or you know, oily sort of – she's just hooked on this yeah. the spicy stuff. And you, you crave it. After all, you crave well, actually, it. Actually, in Chengdu, the food isn't super spicy. They always talk about how it's oh, so much more spicier in Chongqing. So that's where the real spicy food or is. Or Hunan, where it's so dry spicy. Right, it just kills right. you, yeah. yeah. But – yeah, the Sichuan is more is very is you salivate as you eat it, so it's, yeah. so it's a different feel. Yeah. Mm. I mean, have you encountered the Sichuan peppercorn anywhere outside of China? Is, yes, that... actually, in in the in Central Asia, I encountered it as oh, really? I think I explained in the book at one point, and it was fascinating in um, Uzbekistan in a cooking a women's cooking school. It was a bride school where they train these women how to cook in order to prepare themselves for marriage, they pulled out these um, Sichuan peppercorns and they call them haoju, and they think they're Korean. It was fascinating. They actually thought they were Korean. And they put it in some, you know, stir fry that seemed vaguely Chinese because they were, you know, the meat was cut up smaller than it normally is in Central Asia. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so the Sichuan peppercorn went through Central Asia. I didn't see it any further than that. I actually brought some with me uh, further along the route and gave them to chefs in Turkey, and they absolutely loved it. There was this one chef who I got to know, this woman who's 26 and the head of this restaurant there, and she was like popping them in her mouth like mints. And, oh my gosh. You know, stuff, yeah, stuff I, 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 and, some of my friends encounter them for the first time. They, they do that. They, they, they actually will pick them out of food and eat them. I'm like, yeah. you, you don't do that. What yeah. are you doing? I mean, yeah. you're not going to be able to taste anything. I mean, it really days. is a novelty, especially if you know, you're a chef and you, you're a real chef and you right. want to experience new flavors. That's definitely So they appreciate the numbing quality of it also? Oh, or? well, the, 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 the chef that I met, he was very excited experimental certainly mm-hmm. did yeah. yeah so you talked about this cooking school for for brides to be and then there's really a lot of in this book about gender roles and, yes. and different, different cultures yes. that you encounter well much of it very depressing and i gotta <laughs> say like i i feel like with food preparation which is kind of the angle where you take that from okay so there's two worlds with which i'm i'm quite familiar one of course is uh, the united states where i lived all the way through graduate school and the second is first-tier urban China. I mean, really, Beijing, and then, uh, you know, I lived for a little while in Shanghai, too. But my sense, knowing the, from these two worlds, is at least that uh, the, the time spent by males doing meaningful work in the kitchen has, has re- really improved appreciably just in my lifetime. Uh, but that does not seem to be the case. Yeah, that's not know. the case everywhere I traveled along the Silk right. Road. I mean, it certainly was something you see in Italy, of course, with, you know, the cooking class that I went to was taught by... Um, a man named Andrea, um, but you know, <laughs> but um, you know, in uh, Central Asia and in Iran, um, certain parts of Turkey, I mean, really, all the cooking is done by women. And uh, I mean, not only that, but in some places, the women have to eat separate from the men, which was, um, you know, just a little disheartening to see because I'm, I'm not, I wasn't used to that. Um, and, you know, the, there's, the, of course, the cooking school that I went to in 
Uzbekistan that prepares women for women for marriage and by teaching them how to cook and do other skills. And then there was the women's cooking school in Iran, um, where I spent a week, and um, it was only for women, of course, because you know everything is gender segregated in mm-hmm. Iran. And um, but it was a, a great experience for me because. Our uh, minder, our tour guide, who was assigned to us to travel the whole time in Iran, was a man. And so he couldn't attend the women's only cooking school, which meant that I got to spend a week um, learning how to cook from um, a family of women there and, you know, getting to know all these women in Iran, which was absolutely fascinating. And it it was, uh, I didn't even know prior to reading your book that it was as easy as it seems to have been for, for an American uh, to actually get a visa to I go think to it helps um, that I, we applied in China, in Beijing, okay. at the Iranian embassy here. And it was a, at a point, you know, right, you know, the relationship was a little bit better. I think it was 2009, 10, 2010, 2010 that I applied for the visa. Um, and, you know, it's just one of those things that sometimes it comes through, sometimes it doesn't. And even with the visa, everybody was saying, oh, they're going to be turned away when you get to the border. They're never going to let you in. Or, you know, even if they let you in, you're going to be, you know, they're going to throw you in jail right away. And I mean, and we heard all <laughs> sorts of things before we got to Iran. And even during our time in Iran, we were completely paranoid. About- David, you, you were talking about how there's Venn diagrams and sort of this gradual crossing of orders. But when you got to Iran, I felt like you went from from culinary hell to positive heaven. I mean, it was just <laughs> amazing. I'm from, from Turkmenistan. Yes, where yes. Where you weren't eating so well. Yes. Um, the food, you know, was kind of, especially because I had that redundant plov dish in Central Asia, and then getting to Iran, it was like going into Technicolor with the number of you know, different, <laughs> uh, you know, rice pilaf dishes that they have there. You know, they do all kinds of things with it, add, you know, nuts and f- dried fruits and meats and saffron, and, um, you know, they bake it, they steam it, they, you know, mm. do all these things mm. with rice. Um, interestingly, though, the, we did have noodles in Iran, and they were equally terrible as they were in Central Asia. You can have everything. But, yeah. uh, but actually, Iran, but Technicolor, except lacking one color, which, which because of the religious prohibition against alcohol. Oh, which, which, we got around that. I know you got around it. I know, that's true. They, they obviously get around it. You know, yeah. what, but but that, I suddenly, when I read that chapter, it hit me how important the alcohol is to the cuisine. You know, in China, there's certain, there's certain foods, like we mentioned Sichuan food, I can't even think of that without without, beer. without the concept of beer hovering uh, yeah. in the background. Yeah. I mean, you know, you go out to Yang Char and Maldo, that's, Italy, that's almost yeah. an excuse to drink beer. And, and even Baijiu now, in my mind, is associated with certain kinds of things. And wine, of course, in French cuisine, right? In Italian. In Italian cuisine, too, right? So how, I mean, it, how could there be a cuisine without mm. alcohol, a constant, you know, well, foil Iran, for them? Well, you know, they actually <clears throat> have had a tradition of drinking wine that goes back, I mean, Shiraz, Shiraz, right, example, exactly. You went to Shiraz, where right. where the grapes, the grapes from. come from, yeah. And they have always, you know, Marco Polo even documented it in his travel diaries that, you know, Iranians were drinking in his time when he visited. And, um, you know, so it's really more of a recent thing with, um, you know, the, the Islamic Revolution that uh, there has been an official prohibition on, al- on alcohol. Okay. But Maybe now that it's forbidden, that, it tastes even better. Yes, you know? and I think it does. And, I mean, in, in fact, it's very easy to get alcohol. We were served it on multiple occasions in various people's homes. And there's a whole network of suppliers who deliver it um, 
kind of the way that other, you know, like... Like during Prohibition. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. There's, there's an so. old, uh, I don't know which king, may a French king, said it when, who, upon tasting ice cream for the first time back in the 1800s or something, said, but this is delicious. A pity it isn't forbidden. Which is <laughs> <laughs> <Just> like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really does make you crave it more when, yeah. you, when you can't have it. You know. That's really... Hey, uh, so uh, I'm going to wipe the uh, saliva off of my microphone <laughs> here. And, and, um, and we, we, the book uh, is called On the Noodle Road. And it it's uh, it's it's now available for I mean, on Kindle and and uh, I heartily in, in, encourage you to read it. It's a very very enjoyable read. Uh, and let's now move on to our recommendation segment. Uh, and thanks, thanks so much, Jen. That was really fun. But Thank stay and, um, and 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 make a recommendation with us. And let's start with you. What do you got for us? For Silk Road books, um, you must read Foreign Devils on the Silk Road by Peter Hopkirk. Oh, right, Hopkirk. Which is about the various adventurers, including Arl Stein, who, um, who looted the... Um, Dunhuang Caves. The Dunhuang Caves. Right. And um, there's all kinds of different stories in there about various adventures on the Silk Road. It's like the whole Great Game era, right? Yes. Uh, or it's, it's beyond yes. that. It goes Great into Game the 30s. Great Game is also right? another wonderful book by him. And then the other book I would recommend is The Road to Oxiana by Robert Byron, who is, who's distantly related to Lord Byron. Hmm. And it's about travels through Afghanistan, Iran, uh, Central Asia during the 1930s and a uh, fascinating look at the architecture of the region. Oh, excellent. Those are two that I... Oh, I, I've, I've read Foreign Devils, but uh, I'll definitely check out the uh, Thomas Byron. Is it? Uh, Robert, Robert Byron. Byron. Robert mm-hmm. Byron. Oh, excellent. Thanks. David, what do you have for us this week? Um, I can't not stop myself from recommending the new book just out maybe yesterday by Orville Schell. Uh, and uh, John DeLury. Uh, right, called uh, Wealth and Power. Uh, and uh, been long-awaited book, and I don't think I needed to say too much about it except that uh, Orville Schell, as you, you know, Kaiser, I just worship, you know, the, the ink in his pen or whatever you would say, something, you know. Uh, he's, he's one of the most astute and longest-term uh, China hands, you know, and has seen the, 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 uh, the rise of China from, from the Cultural Revolution to the present time, and so the book is kind of a retracing of of that long tortured path with his hindsight and his insight into into all of that and with some you know new evaluations given given what we now know about the the rise of china and what that has entailed because it used to be speculative throughout the 70s 80s what would it be like if when china awoke and now we have answers to a lot of those questions and they 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 cause a lot of other interesting questions to 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 come to the fore so yeah. Uh, I've just started to dip into it, and I think it's just going to be. It just seems to be a. Have you gotten to the Yenfu and Liang Chao chapter? I have not even. No, I, okay. I've just started the, the preface. I did read a little bit of a of a, an advanced thing that was on uh, the, the site, what China file. China file, right? Yeah, and so I know something about it, and I've and, and he's written uh, in advance about it. But it's just uh, I, as I as I tweeted, it's an absolute must. I mean, you know, any China watcher, I think, is going to have to read this book. I'm going to um, uh, recommend. A uh, an audio book actually. I'm 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 a big fan of, of of audiobooks. I have a long commute, and so I listen to them a lot. And uh, one that had been on my list for a long time that I, I just finally got around to, to downloading and to listening to uh, is by Andrew Wheatcroft. It's called Enemy Gate, and it's about the Ottoman siege of Vienna in the 17th century. It's an amazing, amazing book. A really terrific work of history, um, and 
it's made better by by the the narrator, uh, who's one of my favorite narrators of, of audiobooks. His name is Stephen Rudnicki, mm-hmm. and uh, really nice, deep, you know, baritone mm-hmm. voice, and 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 reads everything very, very well, uh, including a lot of the, you know, uh, super. I mean, you know, that that crazy hodgepodge of, of ethnic names that you know that that, that are the old Habsburg Empire, right? The um, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, great book. I I am um, about two thirds of the way through it right now. Jen, thanks so much, Thank and, and great. I'm great having you on, and and I'm I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing you uh, again when you're back in Beijing next time, so we can talk food. Great. And I'm I'm gonna I'm psyched to try some of the recipes in your book too. This is gonna be Please a lot. Please do, and yeah. give me some feedback. I sure will. Okay, David, right. thanks for co-hosting, man. Yeah, we miss Jeremy, but Jeremy, I hope you didn't mind me sitting in your seat. <laughs> I left it warm. He wasn't that crotchety. <laughs> all right, all right. We'll see you guys next week on the Cinema Podcast. Take care. <laughs>